This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can analyze the mental health and personality factors that may be at work in the life and death of Elvis Presley. So I'll start with the background of Elvis Presley, and then I'll move to the mental health and personality factors. Elvis Presley was born in Tupelo, Mississippi on January 8, 1935. His identical twin brother, Jesse, was stillborn. He was delivered about 35 minutes before Elvis. His father's name was Vernon, and his mother was named Gladys. Elvis's mother was described as being dominant. Elvis would develop a particularly close bond with her. They used pet names for each other and communicated using baby talk even into Elvis's adulthood. Vernon was described as not being particularly motivated. He had a series of odd jobs. After Vernon was found guilty of altering a check in 1938, he was sent to jail for eight months and the family lost their home. In school, Elvis was encouraged to enter a singing contest by one of his teachers. He would place fifth. Shortly after this, on his birthday, he was given a guitar and would take lessons from his pastor and two of his uncles over the next year. In 1946, Elvis had to switch schools to go to sixth grade. There he was thought of as a loner. The family moved to Memphis, Tennessee in 1948 and lived in public housing. Elvis started going to high school. A teacher there told him he had no aptitude for singing. After high school, he would eventually go to work as a truck driver as he pursued a career in music. Over the next several years, Elvis, who was normally shy, started to become a little more socially engaged and willing to perform in public. He grew sideburns and started dressing in flashy clothes. In August of 1953, Elvis went to Sun Records ostensibly with the desire to pay them for some studio time so he could record a couple of songs, but it may have been an attempt to be noticed. The owner of the studio, Sam Phillips, invited Elvis to come back and practice with a few local musicians. Phillips eventually agreed to release a rendition of the song That's All Right on his Sun Records label. It was a success on the local charts. Sun Records would eventually sell Elvis's contract to RCA for a record $40,000. In January 1956, Elvis would record his first song with RCA. His first album would be released in March. Elvis was connected to a promoter named Colonel Tom Parker. This would become a key relationship in his life, although not necessarily a positive one. Elvis's popularity continued to increase. In addition to his album, he made several national television appearances, including The Ed Sullivan Show. His first appearance on that show, which was September 9, 1956, was seen by about 60 million viewers. At concerts after this, the crowds were massive and would become somewhat unruly. People were mesmerized and enthralled by Elvis's unconventional performance style. Elvis released a second album and was in the film Love Me Tender. Elvis had accounted for over half of the singles sold by RCA in the first full year that he was there. He would purchase an 18-room mansion near Memphis, Tennessee, is referred to as Graceland. Elvis's concerts continued to draw huge crowds, but not everybody was a fan. His unconventional style was criticized by a number of people who believed he was corrupting an entire generation of youth. 
Elvis was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1958. In August of that year, his mother was diagnosed with hepatitis. She would die on August 14. Elvis would never completely recover from this loss. He started using amphetamines not long after this. Elvis was sent to Germany by the Army. He was assigned to the 3rd Armored Division and would drive a Jeep. Many soldiers there reported that Elvis wanted to be viewed just like any other soldier. He was relatable, generous, and hardworking. Elvis donated his pay from the Army to charity and bought various items for people in his unit and people on the base. Elvis returned to the United States in March 1960 and was honorably discharged. He continued having phenomenal levels of success in the music industry, and he resumed starring in movies. Even though his music was widely appreciated, the vast majority of his movies received poor reviews, but almost all of his films were profitable. Elvis married in late 1966. Elvis and his wife Priscilla would have one daughter in 1968, Lisa Marie. Elvis met Priscilla when she was 14 years old and he was 24, so they had been together for some time. During the mid-1960s, the quality of Elvis's work declined and his record sales decreased dramatically. In December 1968, a Christmas special featuring Elvis was broadcast on NBC. It would become known as the 68 Comeback Special. It did appear to revitalize his career. His next album was a success. Several people referred to him as the king of rock and roll. In 1970, Elvis arranged a meeting with President Richard Nixon. During this meeting, which was described as awkward by Nixon, Elvis talked about how he could connect with hippies and combat the drug culture. The relationship between Elvis and Priscilla was worsening. The couple would separate in February 1972 and would eventually get divorced. Both of them had affairs. One affair that Priscilla had was with a man named Mike Stone, a karate instructor. Elvis performed in another TV special, Aloha from Hawaii, in January 1973. It was considered a success. It was good for his career. During a concert in February of that same year, four men rushed onto the stage, but it was Elvis who actually threw one of the men off of the stage. After this, Elvis became paranoid. He believed the men were sent to kill him by Mike Stone, that karate instructor who had an affair with Priscilla Presley. Elvis disregarded evidence that indicated the four men were simply overenthusiastic fans. His obsession with Mike Stone was so pronounced that one of his bodyguards inquired as to the cost of hiring a hitman to take Stone out, but Elvis decided against that route. Elvis's new girlfriend, Linda Thompson, moved in with him around this time. In 1973, Elvis was having a lot of difficulties with his health. He overdosed twice on barbiturates, and a Demerol overdose put him in the hospital near the end of that year. Elvis continued to perform at concerts, People reported that he was clearly under the influence of substances. Even though he continued to release albums throughout the 70s, they were not particularly successful. Elvis and Linda Thompson ended their relationship in 1976. Elvis found a new girlfriend, Ginger Alden. By this point, Elvis was not functioning well due to his excessive consumption of substances. He managed to perform in a few concerts poorly, and others were canceled or rescheduled. Now moving to August 15, 1977 at Graceland. The time was around 11 p.m. 
when Elvis, Ginger Alden, and a friend went to the dentist. They returned to Graceland at 1.30 a.m. on August 16. At that time, Elvis appeared to be future-oriented and in good spirits. At 6.30 a.m., he called one of his staff for medications to go to sleep. At 8 a.m., he called for a second packet of medication. Elvis went into his master suite bathroom. While sitting on the commode, Elvis died and his body lurched forward onto the floor, where it would stay until he's discovered by Ginger Alden. Elvis Presley would be pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. on August 16, 1977. He was 42 years old. Initially, Memphis medical examiner Dr. Jerry Francisco stated that Elvis died from cardiac arrest and that drugs played no role in his death. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. He made this announcement before the autopsy was complete and before the toxicology results were in. I guess he was a magician in addition to being a physician. Other physicians disagreed with Francisco, saying that the 14 different drugs in Elvis's system certainly contributed to his death. There was a significant quantity of 10 drugs, just to name a few, Valium, Quaaludes, Codeine, Dilaudid, Demerol, and Percodan. There are many theories about what caused Elvis's death. Cardiac arrest is one. Overdose is another. Some physicians believe that the codeine and the quaaludes specifically were major contributors to Elvis's death. The theory developed in 1994, after the autopsy was reopened, that said that Elvis was constipated due to drug use and straining on the toilet led to heart stoppage. Many have noticed how this type of death seems divorced from the life of glamour that Elvis lived not long before this. In 2013, we see yet another theory 
that said that Elvis's death was due in part to a toxic reaction to codeine exacerbated by a liver enzyme defect. It's hard to know what really happened. Elvis had an enlarged heart. He suffered from diabetes, hypertension, constipation, glaucoma, head trauma, and obesity. So there were a lot of factors here. Toward the end in particular, it was said that Elvis was burning the candle at both ends. But I think it's more like a stick of dynamite with 20 or 30 fuses stuck into it, like a porcupine. All the fuses were lit at the same time. A dynamite porcupine is not a thing because it's a bad idea, mostly due to the exploding part. Now moving to the mental health and personality factors. I'm not aware of any report indicating Elvis had an official mental health diagnosis. There have been many theories about mental health dynamics and patterns of behavior that may have been at work with Elvis. One could argue that he was depressed. At some point, he lost enthusiasm that he had for being a musician. He became bored. When he was in his residence, he would shoot at television sets and furniture. It's not clear if this was just something due or if it was frustration, but either way, this seems like destructive behavior, at least from the point of view of the television set. He appeared to have difficulty regulating his intake of food. He also engaged in binge eating. He weighed 350 pounds at the time of his death. Weight gain, of course, was dangerous for him, but his attempts to lose weight were fairly dangerous as well. He convinced a physician to put him in a medically induced coma to lose weight at one point. It ended when he fell out of his hospital bed and woke up. He also tried a number of really aggressive diets that were quite dangerous. It seems fairly clear that Elvis had difficulties with substances. They were a major part of his life and almost certainly, at least indirectly, contributed to his demise. Among other problems, it's likely his drug use caused insomnia. This is a pattern we have seen with many other celebrities who died young. They get trapped in the cycle of taking drugs to go to sleep and taking them to be alert in the day. Like many people who are dependent on substances, Elvis was critical of other people who use substances. Elvis seemed to have an unusual relationship with his mother. I mentioned the dynamics there were fairly peculiar. I think her loss, of course, was significant in his life. It seemed to start a spiral from which he could not recover. The group of people surrounding Elvis from the early 60s until his death came to be known as the Memphis Mafia. Many people considered them parasitic and accused them of failing to act to protect Elvis from himself. They essentially said these people were just there for Elvis's money. The promoter, Tom Parker, maintained a great deal of control over Elvis. Many think of Tom Parker as a con artist. Elvis did not like the business side of being a musician and an actor. He would sign contracts without even reading them. It would appear that Tom Parker was exploiting Elvis in a number of ways. Financially, of course, was the main way. We know that Elvis did not manage his money well at all. He would regularly buy items for members of the Memphis Mafia, including cars and firearms. When Elvis would go to a car dealership, in addition to buying a car for himself, he would often buy a car for whichever friend happened to be with him at the time. Sometimes he would buy cars for customers who happened to be standing on the lot. Among his many car purchases, he bought over 100 Cadillacs in his lifetime. Elvis was fascinated with firearms. He often carried a gun, sometimes even on stage. This was probably because he had received so many death threats. 
He had an unusually high interest in law enforcement. He collected badges and other credentials from law enforcement agencies. It's not clear why people kept giving them to him. He would put lights and sirens on his vehicles, pull people over, and give them tickets, playing it off like it was okay because it was his autograph. Of course, this was still illegal. Elvis had a number of extramarital affairs. He had a particular affinity for young girls. Most of his relationships were with females no older than 15, which even back in his time was illegal. Elvis had an unprecedented level of fame. He was certainly a good vocalist, although his acting talent left a lot to be desired. Even though he was credited with co-writing several songs, he said he never wrote a song in his life. He never even had an idea for a song. With that fame came a number of people who were willing to do anything for Elvis. He led a life where he could indulge all of his desires, and people were right there willing to make it happen for him. It was a life with no restrictions, just gratification. A good example of this was found in the story of Dr. George Nicopolis, Elvis's main physician. He was tried in 1981 for causing Elvis's death, but he was exonerated. In the 20 months before the death of Elvis, this physician prescribed over 12,000 pills, including narcotics, amphetamines, and sedatives. All these prescriptions were written to Elvis, but the physician said that they were really intended for his entire entourage. He also borrowed money from Elvis, a behavior typically not associated with the competent practice of medicine. Even though this physician escaped criminal liability, eventually his license would be permanently revoked after other charges were brought forward. Elvis was able to find a lot of people like this physician. Nobody was willing to say no to Elvis. Let's take a look at his potential personality profile. When I conceptualize personality, I use the five-factor model. I remember the five factors through the acronym OCEAN, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So we see that Elvis appeared to have high openness to experience. He created a unique style of performing and seemed to experience emotions intensely. He had low conscientiousness. He was impulsive and irresponsible, although he did have a good work ethic. His concert schedule in particular was brutal. He had mid-range to low extroversion. He was repeatedly described as introverted and shy, although it appears he was able to act extroverted. Also, he was excitement-seeking, so mostly mid-range to low, but we see that one high facet. He had mid-range to high agreeableness. He was too trusting and somewhat altruistic. We see high neuroticism. He was angry, anxious, and depressed, and had no ability to resist temptation. I think Elvis exemplifies the dangers of fame and wealth. He was an extremely talented singer who had a number of undesirable characteristics, and the destructive nature of those characteristics was amplified by his fame. I think the fame combined with the loss of his mother led him to drugs, and once that happened, there was no going back. In addition, if those reports about his affinity for young females were accurate, Elvis would be considered a criminal. If his career peaked during this time, it's likely he would have been arrested, convicted, and sent to prison. It's not healthy to have all of one's desires met. Not everybody can self-regulate. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. 
Ars Longa Vita Brevis. On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.